Welcome to the She's Up Leadership Podcast, brought to you by Coach Kimberly International, featuring conversations and actionable insights that equip women in STEM to lead in today's BUCA world. Welcome to the She's Up Leadership Podcast. I'm your host, Dr. Kimberly Jackson. In this episode, I have the pleasure of speaking with Neity Tamasker, a breast cancer survivor, author, TEDx speaker, an electrical and computer engineer who holds her own at a Fortune 150 company. Nia T. immigrated to the United States from India as a teenager to pursue a degree in electrical and computer engineering. From India to Indiana, Nia T. and her husband currently live in Columbus with their two children. In 2018, she was diagnosed with breast cancer while breastfeeding her daughter. While going through the grueling treatment planned for her, Neity started to journal. The writing was cathartic, and she published a memoir of her breast cancer journey called Unafraid, A Survivor's Quest for Human Connection. Her book was featured in Forbes magazine as a book that will help spark human connections. Neity donates all proceeds to the American Cancer Society. In 2020, Neity took to the TED stage to talk about the cultural biases and stigma associated with cancer. She then went on to write a second book, Unabashed, Self-Advocacy and the Quest to Foster Empathy, which talks about the challenges of being a young cancer survivor. In the past three years, Neity has had several media appearances. She was featured in a video for breastcancer.org, recognized as one of 10 women engineers you should know by the Society of Women Engineers, featured in Columbus Magazine from Front Page and the Republic newspaper, and did a fireside chat with Estee Lauder Companies for Breast Cancer Awareness, which was widely appreciated. Nia T, welcome and thank you for joining me today. Kimberly, thank you so much. And thank you to the She's a Podcast crew for having me. It, it's really a, a treat and a delight. I just discovered that we're both members of SWE. And so I just love that extra connection between us. So what I'd like to do is just invite the listeners that are tuning in to be able to just take a virtual seat beside us. And we'll have kind of a girl fireside chat. Because you have a very powerful story on resilience, connection, and empathy. And so I want to be able to give you the floor to be able to share that story and some of the insights that we'll be able to take away, um, all of us, regardless of what our circumstances are. I think your story is applicable. Um, yes, thank you, Kimberly. Um, I'll start from the beginning. It was... 2nd of March, 2018, when I heard the words that would forever change my life. All three sites have tested positive for cancer. My immediate thought was, this can't be real. I am a mother of two children under the age of 40. My next thought was, this can't happen because I am breastfeeding. 
My mind then raced the party we had planned for my daughter's first birthday the following week. But the reality was that my world had split into two, BC and AD. BC for before cancer, a life where we were thriving as a family, and AD for after diagnosis, a life I didn't recognize anymore. Fighting each moment of my grueling treatment to be present, to be a mother and a wife. The company I work for, Cummins, stood by me during this fight and offered me as much time off as I needed. I let my management know it's not time off that I need, but work that will occupy my time and keep my mind engaged and busy. Having time to contemplate my mortality was not good for my mental health. But don't get me wrong. I did take time off for my surgery and 28 sessions of radiation. But during chemotherapy, I call into meetings from the infusion center. I even flew to California after my fifth chemo cycle, as that was a show of my strength supported wholly by my family and the community that I live in. It was only months after treatment where I started journaling my journey. (laughs) That rhymes. (laughs) Um, I found the writing process to be therapeutic, um, and I wrote for me. It's during this time that I wondered who else could benefit from my writing. The answer was clear. Women of color under the age of 40 that have been diagnosed with cancer. So my ramblings turned into chapters, which turned into a book. Unafraid, A Survivor's Quest for Human Connection was received very well by readers of all ages. From a mother in Mumbai who let her 14-year-old daughter read it to a colleague who recently retired. It was understood by people in all walks of life of different ethnicities. And part of the appeal is my vulnerability in the writing, as echoed by my readers. Um, I talk about my fears, my sorrow, my mourning for my breasts, which, by the way, is an amputation. Um, readers found that my this allergy to toxic positivity was rather refreshing. And hence the subtitle, Human Connection. That was what um, my aim was for that book. Um, I was thrust in a world where there's stigma associated with cancer, bad genes, bad karma, poor choices, and the bias spans across cultures and is more universal than we think. To my American audience, I ask you this. What is the first thing that comes to your mind when you hear of a lung cancer diagnosis? Overwhelmingly, people assume it only happens to smokers, which is not actually true. So I found the best way I can destigmatize this disease is to talk about the C word. And that's what took me to the TED stage in Bloomington, Indiana. Of course, that's not where I stopped. I've also written a second book on survivorship called Unabashed Self-Advocacy in the Quest to Foster Empathy. I'm filled with emotion, so I'm taking a pause myself. Um, The fact that you said you were supported by your employer. Um, Huge win, right? Mm -hmm. Um, But what I took away from that was you spoke up and asked for what you needed and you were very clear. It's not about time off. It's about meaningful work to engage my mind, you know, to keep me busy and and, um, productive during that time. And I had a very dear friend that that went through breast cancer and thankfully she too 
is a survivor. And I went to the infusion center with her. And I can tell you out of all the times I've gone, I've never seen anyone calling into a meeting. So I'm like, you go girl. (laughs) I'm like, all right. Um, I'm curious from doing that because obviously that was like that show of strength, um, determination, um, resilience. Um, had anyone else in the infusion center like commented or asked you questions during those times? Um, so two things happened at the infusion center for me. One is there was not a single patient in there that looked like me. They were all much older, white men and women going through treatment. There was no woman of color, nobody under the age of 35, young looking, other than nurses who were treating me, right? So that part of my experience was extremely isolating. Also another reason why I wrote the book, because there are women like me in similar situations who would want to know that they're not alone, that that they don't have to fight this fight alone. But then the second part of that journey was because the nurses were all approximately my age, all of them young mothers, right? Some, you know, actively pregnant, getting ready to become a new mom. Um, They, they, they shared my, my confusion as to, you know, why somebody so young who was breastfeeding would get diagnosed. Um, They understood that I worked not because I had to, or someone was making me work, but because I wanted to, because I wanted to be gainfully employed and engaged. Um, they, uh, they knew that the chemo days can be quite long. The infusions can be anywhere from four to six hours or six hour days rather long to be just sitting in one place or not allowed to move around other than to maybe use the restroom. And so it was important for me to have my headset on and, and to, to call into meetings, to update slides, work on, you know, um, my spreadsheets and, there was there was no one else like me, and I don't think there has been since at the local cancer center. But I, I feel like what you, you said in the beginning is, is what I echo. You have to ask for what works for you. If somebody has been diagnosed and they immediately want to stop all work and concentrate on other things or meditation or their treatment is still grueling, as employers, we should allow them what they need in their time of need. And with that, what the employer gains out of me or women like me that you have supported is our unwavering loyalty. And that cannot be measured in dollars or your income or your pay or your benefits. So it's a mutually beneficial um, relationship. I can't imagine what it would be like to be unique in a environment where people are already feeling vulnerable. So in your journalings and writings, what bubbled up for you around vulnerability? Um, When I started writing, which was only for me, I wasn't going to publish, that was not on my mind. um, I needed a safe space, free of judgment, where I could write exactly what I was feeling or what I felt at a certain point during treatment. Something, you know, I'm born and raised in India and right now mental health is getting talked about a little bit more. There's um, therapy and, and, you know, you can seek counseling, but it wasn't so available when I was growing up. So um, the 
I'm not comfortable with seeking therapy. Now, when I was diagnosed, multiple leaders within uh, Cummins, you know, recommended that I should try it. And, and I did, but I just felt more misunderstood, um, judged. And again, just being so different, being 34, being a breastfeeding mother, being from India, being non-white, only one of the infusion center. I didn't get any kind of, um, you know, confirmation from the, the therapist as to, yeah, this is hard. And so that's why I turned to, to writing where I could write exactly what I felt and, and the, and the pages wouldn't talk back and the pages wouldn't judge me. And, and, um, I felt safe because, um, so many people when I was diagnosed told me, oh, just be positive. And, you know, uh, our thoughts and prayers are with you. And, and for me, it's being positive is not going to make my cancer go away. Chemotherapy is going to help me as one step of the process. A double mastectomy is going to help me as one step of the process. Radiation, another step of the process, right? So positivity is, is, can be so toxic when it's thrust upon you, when you're in not a very good time of your life or in a dark space. Um, I would like to touch on your view of positivity and the appropriate use of it versus an inappropriate use of it. And I feel that initially it may have been inappropriately used because it might not have been what you really needed because you just laid out steps. So I take that as you're very process-oriented, very methodical. There is a plan. You know, I'm going to begin with the end in mind. But when you're looking at your own mortality through that process, that's not that easy to do. You know, you have a hope for where you want to be and you craft a plan. But when people do say, think positively, I, I can personally relate because I've had some serious health crises and I've actually died. I'm a vole, a void of life. I was a void of life for 37 minutes and I'm now fully functioning and talking to you. Um, so I can, yeah, I can relate because people were, were saying similar things about you need to be positive. You know, um, find the silver linings, you know, find the joy. And I remember doing one of my physios and one more person said, find the joy. And I actually slapped them. <laughs> I was like, <laughs> like, you find the joy. You know? <laughs> uh, and then I, I was like, oh, I found joy in that. I felt better after <laughs> acting out on this person. Um, but but I, I, so I, I can relate. So how did your emotional well-being, being able to be in that, the safe space of the pages of your journal, how did that impact your emotional well-being? Can you share a little bit more? Yeah, I'll, I'll touch on both uh, parts of your question. Initially, you asked about, you know, what does positivity mean to me, right? Um, so I say that there is a huge difference between positivity and hope. At no point in my uh, battle or journey through cancer did I lose hope. I was hopeful the treatment would work, hopeful that the symptoms would subside, hopeful the surgery would be successful and that we wouldn't have complications. Um, 
But did I change the word hope into positive? No. How could I be positive that the surgery would be fine and we would have no complications? You don't know that. How could I be positive that the, that the treatment would work? I was hopeful that the treatment would work. Something else uh, when you talk about positivity is what I'd like to highlight is that having negative thoughts, what we call as negative thoughts, fear, anxiety, depression, sorrow, um, maybe even feeling hopeless, which I tend not to, to be in that space, but the other spaces I've been in, and, and, and I'm okay admitting that. So for me, when you say, be, when I was told be positive, that was people saying, do not be fearful. I'm like, okay, I've got stage three breast cancer. You're not allowed to tell me that I, I need to not have fear. Uh, don't feel sorrow. People, uh, women who were trying to encourage me, who were trying to be supportive, said to me, oh, it's just breasts. You know, it's more important that you're here uh, for your children. And while I, yes, I agree, more important is that I'm here for my children, but it's not just breasts. I'm 34. I was using my breasts for the one thing that has been designed for, that is breastfeeding. And now they're going to get amputated. So no, you're not allowed to tell me that I'm not allowed to feel sorrow. I'm allowed to mourn. But then I have all of my hope. I have the hope that after I do this horrible surgery, we're going to be cancer-free. I have hope that the radiation will give me the insurance that I'll have a long-term survival. I always have hope. Positivity, yeah, there are days that are beautiful and there are days that I, I am sad or I have fears or, or anxiety. And I'm okay with that because at the end of the day, I still function as a mother, a wife, an engineer, a citizen of society. And I think that is the big one. Saying that I have zero fears, I'm completely positive, it's only rainbows and sunshine, that just sets the bar unreasonably, uh, unrealistically for others that might be going through a tough time. Um, I appreciate that you shared um, that you clinically died for 37 minutes. That, that's just you know incredible. We'll have to catch up after this and you have to tell me more about it. I'll interview you. Um, <laughs> But um, what what I one of the things with my my journaling, my writing, which is the second part of your question, is um, what it did when when others started reading it, people came out of the woodwork telling me their story, the way you just told me about yours. Um, a neighbor three doors down came and told me she had a terrible twenty two week loss of pregnancy, which isn't even a miscarriage at this point because it's a baby, and and it was really tough on her and her family. Um, another neighbor in the community came and told me that they went through um, five cycles of IVF in order to conceive. And, and that was a hormonal mess, right? But yeah, they have their baby now and people say, well, at least you got the child. But that doesn't uh, mean that they didn't go through a tough time. You are allowed to acknowledge, wow, that must have been so hard. You don't have to follow that up with at least. No, no, at least. I'm going to look at your pain and say, wow, that must have been really tough. And I'm going to leave it at that. You're allowed to say, yes, this was a very hard journey. So my writing gave, and it was mainly women that came out of the woodwork. And 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 also um, uh, divorce is um, kind of a bit of a taboo in India. So I had um, my friends back home come out and say, yeah, you know, got married too young was a mistake. We weren't compatible. Or, or come out and say, I actually had an abusive husband. And so I left him. But they don't talk about divorce openly because they're kind of shunned part of society. So the, my writing just gave an avenue for these other women to, to voice 
whatever their sorrow is, right? And and for me to just listen, not to say, hey, at least now you have another husband who's so wonderful. No, no, there's no at least. There's, I hear you. I'm so sorry. It must have been so tough. Just acknowledging your pain. You know, I had a guest on earlier that talked about a compassion gap. And you're reminding me of that. Because you you want to just simply, we all want to know that we belong and that I'm you see me and I'm heard. Right? We don't want the what is to be judged or minimized. And and I'm I'm picking up on a little bit of that in our conversation because it's so true that and and now there there's a lot of talk about empathy and I think that would be a really good segue into um I always ask guests like what are you currently reading but I also know you know you have more than one book um but the second one around the self advocacy and the quest to foster empathy Empathy is like a really sought after skill in leadership development today. And so I'd just love to hear your thoughts on it and like some of the connecting points. Right. I'll talk both about empathy and self-advocacy. I'll start with self-advocacy. So so just similar to the example of when uh, Cummins offered me time off, I said, no, give me work, right? I use that example of self-advocacy all through my life and through every aspect of what I've gone through. So during cancer, the self-advocacy was asking um, my surgeons, you know, what are my options? Asking the medical oncologist, what chemotherapy drugs is she recommending and why? Um, Asking the radiation oncologist, what is the plan for radiation and how are we going to protect my heart and lungs? And that was never done out of disrespect. I am not a doctor. I'm not a medical oncologist. That was done with sheer respect and and, and curiosity to know how are we going to um, assure long-term survival for me. And that has to start with questions. What's interesting is every physician that I've had dealing with from the OBGYN to the radiation oncologist, I, I go there with my questions written down on a piece of paper front and back. And and they really appreciate it. I'm, I've never been rushed out of a, a clinic or, or sorry, a, a, a doctor's uh, office. I sometimes have to wait two hours before they come see me, but I'm never annoyed by that because I know there's probably another woman in the next room who has questions front and back and they're doing due diligence to answer her questions. And I think that part of self-advocacy is just something that I have practiced and done from the time I was a little child to through my pregnancies through the cancer and I continue to do that now I tried and and I try to give that voice to the ones that can't ask that are too afraid that feel like this is not their place to question and it, I, I never question I ask questions and there's a big difference between questioning and asking questions um so that's the self-advocacy bit um now empathy what's interesting yeah empathy is quite a buzzword these days and and rightfully short it should be around so I'm happy about that but with the empathy, the first thing I think of is what happens in the lack of empathy? And the word that comes to my mind is apathy. Apathy, um, yeah. And an environment where somebody has apathy leaves the recipient feeling 
unheard, unseen, unimportant. And so that's so so empathy, we can talk about what are all the what defines empathy, but you should also see what is the opposite of empathy, and that's apathy. And do you want to live in a world full of apathy? And people overwhelmingly say no. So um empathy, part of you know my book, my vulnerability, is to to find that that empathetic nerve in in your heart where you may not have gone through exactly what I went through, but you empathize because you have either seen a loved one struggle through something. Um, you yourself have another struggle that you can, um, you know, learn from and, and use as an analogy. And so um, that came out in, in both books. And I, I just feel like if you use that, you know, the currency of hope where, yes, I might have fears, but I, I have hope for a long, you know, healthy future um, that, that I may not know what it is like to have. Uh, a miscarriage or to go through IVF, but I've been through a tough cancer journey so I can empathize. I feel your pain. I hear you. I see you. I do not um, brush off your sorrow because that is not my place. And it's nobody's place. It is for you to come to terms with. When you talk about empathy, I, I, I really, re- I'm like, my mind's like going click, click, click. I really like how you brought in the opposite and, and apathy. I've not had someone so clearly and eloquently do that. So thank you. Um, That's going to really stick with me. That's going to really stay with me. When you think about empathy and cultivating empathy, do you think there's ways people can cultivate the empathy who may not have a painful experience that they can connect to? I don't think I've ever met anyone that had a life as perfect as they show on Instagram and social media. There's always a hidden pain. The question is, are you talking about it or not? So my pain was my cancer, and I talk about it. Uh, mental health. What about um, sexual orientation? Being transgender. Are you, are you talking about that or not? You might post a picture saying, yes, I finally got to marry my significant other because it's been legalized in a certain state that I live in. But but th- that's only the rosy picture. What about the backstory when you couldn't be together or when it was illegal to get married or that you've been with each other for 20 years, but it's not even recognized as a marriage, right? So that's that. that. So I think everyone has a backstory. It might be naive of me to say that. It's just whether it's hidden or publicly talked about. I'm I'm smiling so big and I know our our listeners can't see that. I totally agree with you. When I've come into corporate settings and we talk about emotional intelligence and self-regulating and and empathy and people will bring up, well, what if I can't really relate? What if I haven't been through something that tragic? I come from that same place of we all have inner scars it's are we going to let them show so they can heal yeah i like that I, a lot i like that a lot yeah inner scars yeah yeah um well i have like so enjoyed talking to you um are, is there any other closing advice you'd like to give um especially to like um our women in, in STEM and about leadership, because um, you have a very impressive career 
being at, and especially being at Cummins. Um, is there any parting wisdom you'd like to give around leadership development or career trajectory, mentorship? Sure. Um, I, I think I'll touch on mentorship. Um, I would say that it is important for women to know that mentorship is a two-way street. So while you're learning from a mentor's knowledge, depth, experience, you as the mentee is giving him or her an opportunity to be a better leader and to expand their leadership capacity. So I feel a mentee is just as valuable as a mentor. Um, so, so when you go into that relationship as being a mentee, just remember your worth. Um, for me personally, when I look for mentors, I seek for people that are very different from me. For example, one of my mentors is a vice president, tall, white man, born and raised in Indiana. I, on the other hand, am a teacup-sized human, brown female, born and raised in India. The diversity of our backgrounds makes this mentorship a mutually beneficial relationship. And I, I really enjoy that. So um, seek out people that are different from you, that look different from you, grew up different, speak different. And, and I think you will stand to gain as much as they will gain from you. Oh, I really like that, especially the know your worth, because I always handpick one female and one male to mentor for about a two-year journey. And I they're always appreciative and thankful, but I always have to come back and remind them how much they've poured into me and they've helped me. You know, some some will ask me questions that really make me think, you know, and so it, it is a two-way street and it can be very rewarding. So I like to encourage people to um, self-advocacy, right? Speak up, go out. What do you need? You know, where are you wanting to go? And um, what kind of life and career are you crafting? You know? Absolutely. Well, I, again, I really appreciate you donating your time and being able to share your story. And um, I'll absolutely look forward to talking to you again. Um, I would absolutely love to stay connected, Niati. And um, I wish you all good things. Thank you so much, Kimberly. It has been an absolute honor for me. Um, we will stay connected and I want to learn more about your 37 minutes. That's it for this episode of the She's Up Leadership Podcast. As always, thank you to our listeners for tuning in. You can subscribe to She's Up on Apple, Google, Spotify, Audible, Alexa, Pandora, or wherever you get your podcast. I'm your host and executive producer, Dr. Kimberly Jackson, founder and principal of Coach Kimberly International. Special thanks to our marketing manager, Sandy Lomas, and to audio engineer, Joseph Keenan, with Short Stack Studios in New York. We invite you to join us in our commitment to advancing women in leadership in STEM fields. To learn more about the She's Up movement, visit us at coachkimberly.com.